I tell patients, you know, instead of reaching for a substitute way to comfort yourself, do something hard. I say, do something physically or mentally hard, even physically painful for you, like exercise or, you know, ice cold water baths. And the reason for that is because, again, getting back to the pleasure pain balance, when we press on the pain side of the balance, the gremlins hop on the pleasure side of, of the balance, and we get an opponent process reaction that ultimately will move our needle toward a pleasure homeostasis. It, it will basically by, you know, through the science of hormesis, by introducing toxic or painful stimuli in small doses, what we do is we activate our body's own regulating and healing mechanisms, our own endocannabinoid, endoopioid, endoserotonergic, endodopamine systems to upregulate so that we're kind of making our own dopamine. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes. And today's guest is one of the world's leading experts on the neuroscience of addiction and recovery. Anna Lemke is chief of the Stanford Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic and professor and medical director of addiction medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Lemke has testified before Congress and consulted with governors and senators from Kentucky to Missouri to Nevada. You may also recognize her from her appearance in the hit Netflix movie, The Social Dilemma. Aside from this, Anna has also written two books, Drug Dealer MD, and her latest book, the New York Times bestseller, Dopamine Nation. Our conversation covers an array of important topics to help highlight the real connection between science, addiction, and recovery. Anna explains the neuroscience of addiction and how it affects the brain in decision-making. We get into how to prevent addiction, what to do if you're addicted, and the different recovery options. Our combo gets into the subject of relapse, including why so many fall back into their addictive behaviors even after sustained abstinence. We chat about how to thrive in early recovery and how to prevent relapse. We also cover how technological advances have impacted the current epidemic and discuss hidden addictions that you may not be aware of. Anna shares how she helps her patients with anxiety and depression and why using drugs to treat such things can actually backfire. Our discussion gets into current hot topics like the opioid epidemic, cannabis use, and advice for parents when they have a loved one who's struggling. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Anna Lemke to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Anna, welcome to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Thanks for having me, Doug. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to to really have this conversation with you because you're one of the you're literally one of the world's leading experts on addiction, on recovery, on dopamine, and it's a topic that I've covered on the podcast before, but I felt like to take it to the next level, I think you're the perfect person to to have this endeavor with. Well, great. Thank you. I mean, I I know so many, you know, expert people in this field, but I'm I'm honored that you see me as as somebody who is expert and I'm happy to do my best. 
Yeah. And I think a good place to start is, is to talk about like the neuroscience of addiction and how it essentially like impacts the brain when you do drugs. And I'll kind of preface this by saying my own experience with addiction is that, you know, I had a, I had a bunch of trauma. Parents got divorced. I was bullied. I had all the things growing up where I was mismanaging pain. And it started with me smoking pot recreationally to numb all that. And then eventually I couldn't get high enough. And I started to turn to other things like selling drugs, doing cocaine, doing Oxycontin, just working my way up that addiction ladder. And I know we're going to get into like more or less like what you believe is like at the foundation of the, of addiction, as far as like what causes it, what doesn't cause it. And then like how we can move forward. But I guess to, to give some context to it, I, I, I know that most people, they know that drugs aren't good for the brain, but if you could explain like what happens to the brain when, when addiction takes over and why people start to make these poor choice, start to make these choices that end up, you know, virtually destroying their lives. Yeah, sure. So first of all, let me just say that, you know, trauma is, is a really common gateway into using substances as a way to, to cope and, and, and numb that pain. But the, the problem is because of the way that addictive substances change the brain over time, it's ultimately, you know, not, not a productive path. It can work for a while. And, and for some people it can work for a long while, but, but ultimately, you know, people run out of rope. And so I'm happy to tell you kind of how that happens and what happens in the brain, you know, as people get to that point, which is really how, how I understand the disease of addiction, you know, which is marked by these brain changes. And essentially, you know, the way to understand this is to recognize that the part of the brain that processes pleasure is also um, the part of the brain that processes pain. So pleasure and pain are co-located and they work like opposite sides of a balance. So if you imagine in your brain, there's a balance like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground, but it's when it's at rest, it's level with the ground, meaning it's, it's like, you know, parallel with the ground. And when we do something that's reinforcing or pleasurable, or even in the case of somebody who's struggling with psychological or physical pain, you know, something that, that, that relieves that pain, what it does is it tips our balance toward the side of pleasure. We get a little release of dopamine in the brain's reward pathway, which is in, in the lower part of the brain, an evolutionarily conserved, very, very old part of the brain. And, and we experience you know, a release of dopamine, our pleasure neurotransmitter, and we, we experience some pleasure or reinforcement. But no sooner has that happened than the brain adapts to the presence of that increased or elevated dopamine by downregulating our own dopamine receptors and our own dopamine transmission. And this is what neuroscientists call neuroadaptation. And the way that I imagine this is these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But the gremlins like it on the balance, so they don't get off as soon as the balance is level. They stay on until it's tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's called the opponent process reaction. And that's essentially the way that our brains restore a level balance or what's called homeostasis. So after the balance is tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain, you know, the gremlins hop off after a little bit, and then the balance is level again. It's back to homeostasis 
or the level baseline of tonic dopamine release. But, but here's the key thing that happens in addiction. When we repeat our use of a highly reinforcing substance or behavior, basically the initial response to the pleasure side gets weaker and shorter and the opponent process or after response gets stronger and longer. One way to imagine that is that instead of now having one gremlin hop on the pain side of your balance, you've got two or three gremlins or with repeated use, you get like an Arnold Schwarzenegger type gremlin, right? And eventually over time, you get so many gremlins that they could fill up this whole room and they're camping out on the pain side of the balance. And this is what leads to tolerance, needing more and more of the drug to get the same effect or more, more potent forms of the drug or more potent delivery mechanisms of the drug in order to essentially beat out the gremlins that are trying to bring us back to our homeostatic baseline. But it's not just about tolerance. The other key feature is that once the gremlins are hot, you know, camped out on the pain side, they will stay there a very long time. So even after sustained abstinence from a drug, we're talking weeks, months, and in some cases, even years later, people are still walking around with their pleasure pain balance tipped to the side of pain. That means they're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and intrusive thoughts of using, also known as craving. And for me, this is really the key piece to understand addiction and also the way that I was able to access compassion for people who would relapse long after their lives were objectively so much better not using. I thought to myself, why would they give it all up to go back to using? And when I finally understood, it's that they're walking around with a pleasure pain balance tip to the side of pain, and they're using not to get high, but just to feel normal, just to be out of suffering that I really, I really came to understand, you know, the way in which the disease of addiction can hijack this reward system and lead to this chronic relapsing and remitting problem. You said that so beautifully. And I had a psychiatrist explain it to me very similarly and like the pleasure, the pleasure trap, I guess they call it right. In that initially, let's just say like somebody who's never used drugs, they might find going to the Grand Canyon as like a level 10 on their pleasure scale and like getting high on drugs as a level one. But then when you start to use drugs, the scale like shifts, right? The balance beam shifts and that level 10, the Grand Canyon starts to come down to a nine, eight, seven, six, and so on. And the drugs go all the way up. And now your brain's been completely hijacked. And if you're using harder drugs like cocaine and methamphetamine and stuff like that, like it's like hundreds or even thousands of times the dopamine levels that are at that homeostasis of your brain normally. And you create this, this ultimately this, this recipe for, for disaster. And I guess I always try to go, and I know for you, what you've, I've heard you talk about that. It seems that we focus way too much on the cause. And instead of just accepting that addiction is addiction. And we, we have spent so much time. If you think about it, there's this, there's these arguments that go on in the recovery community about like, what is it? Is it trauma? Is it environment? Is it lack of community? Is it genetics? Is it biology? Is it fentanyl? Like, and we go back and forth on like, well, who's right. When really like, that's not fixing the problem. Like facts are the fact is like, you know, almost 93,000 people 
died of a drug overdose in 2020. So clearly we're not doing something right. But I often wonder, like we're taught as human beings that just be happy and you know do what you need to do to be happy. And it becomes this trap where in life, you're never always going to be happy. And when you measure the success of your life based on how happy you are, you know, every day, I mean, you're setting yourself up for failure because we're ultimately always going to experience pain. So along those contexts, I know this is something you like to talk about as well. Like, how do you think as humans, we can do a better job of navigating this pleasure trap, this happiness trap so that we can manage our dopamine levels in a healthy way so that we don't end up falling down this path of addiction. Yeah. Wow. You, you bring up so many good points that I just want to touch on. Let let me kind of go back and start start in order. So yeah, your, your sort of, you know, your use of the example of the, the visiting the grand Canyon being progressively less interesting as, as drugs become more and more interesting that that's exactly right. And, And in the field of neuroscience, that's often called salience. So the salience and our focused attention on the drug really narrows and to a point where we're not, not able to focus on other things, but more importantly, not, not able to get joy from other things the, the, it also reminds me of a, a very fascinating experiment where rats were, you know, exposed to a complex maze in which there were a lot of interesting things to do in that maze. And what the researchers discovered is that with a complex maze that required, you know, challenging situations and learning of the maze, there was arborization of dopaminergic neurons in the brain's reward pathway. In other words, learning in and of itself is reinforcing and leads to the expression of dopamine in the reward pathway, which is good news and which is wonderful. And you know, most of us have experienced the joy of learning and of competency in a specific area. But when those same rats received a single dose of methamphetamine and then were released into the complex maze, what the researchers found was that there was no additional arborization of dopaminergic neurons after exposure to the maze. So what that implies is that the drugs literally hinder not just our ability to take joy in other activities, but also to learn. And I think this is really important because what I see so often uh, in my clinical work is what is literally arrested development, you know, a kind of an arrest in maturation and an insight and in growth, which is why for me clinically, whether people come in seeking help for depression or anxiety or addiction, the starting place is always the substance use, because until we get that under some modicum of control, the brain literally is unable to learn. And without learning, there's, you know, there's no insight and without insight, there's no growth and there's no behavior change. Okay. So let me address your, your second point, which was this idea of expectations around happiness. And I think this is also really key for recovery, not just for people with addiction, but to sort of recovery from modern life, which is what I talk quite a bit about in dopamine nation as well. And, and, you know, my, my, my patients, one of the things they struggle with most in early recovery is the very complex emotion of boredom, right? It's just boring. You know, life is just kind of boring. 
And so a lot of our talk is sort of focused on this. And what I do is I simply validate that. I'm like, yeah, you know, modern life is boring. We have all of our basic survival needs cared for. You know, we work, but the work is often kind of boring. I'm lucky. I have really interesting work. I think it's interesting. I consider myself incredibly privileged to do the work I do, but I also recognize that a lot of people have jobs that, you know, are not that interesting, you know, and then there's an enormous amount of leisure time, you know, much more than we've ever had before. And on top of all of that is layered this cultural expectation that if you're not ecstatic in your life, something's wrong with you, something is wrong with your family, something's wrong with the world, you've got it wrong. You've got, you know, you haven't, you haven't yet hacked your life. And that's also not true because, you know, life just isn't easy and it never will be. And there's no kind of secret sauce that makes life easy and wonderful. And in my opinion, a really good starting place for ironically, you know, a good life or a meaningful life is to simply stop searching for happiness. You know, stop looking for that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Even if you get it, it's not what you thought it would be. And then we're kind of left with, well, then what, you know, what is it all about? And that, that's a great question. You know, like what, what, if we're not looking to feel good, what, what should we be looking for? Right. And, and I think, you know, when you talk about like this idea of early recovery and how, the, how it's challenging, I think there's this, there's this facade. I, I see it a lot in the recovery community that just get sober, just get into recovery. Like your life's going to be wonderful. Right. And, and while I believe that it's true, there's a lot of truth that if you're putting down a substance, that's destroying your life, your life will get better, but it's going to get a lot harder before it gets better initially, because now you're really faced to, to your to deal with the demons that that led you to use the drugs and alcohol or whatever substance it was in the first place, and really face that head on and say, okay, like I have all this free time that I spent like figuring out how I'm gonna how I'm gonna score drugs, figuring out like who I'm gonna get high with, and all these things. Like, what do I do with that time? And there, a lot of people aren't taught that. Right. And AA and AA and I think some of these other recovery programs that have like fundamentals and like they have structure can be a great, you know, starting place for people, but it doesn't work for for everyone. And I think also along those lines that people assume that, oh, like the drugs and alcohol are gone, like life's just gonna be easier because my life was so hard with the drugs, but they forget that life still presents itself challenges. So I know like you're in your work, you, you, you do a lot like in the, the dual diagnosis world where you're not only, you know, working with people on their addictions, but mental health as well, anxiety, depression. So like with that said, clear, clearly when somebody gets off a substance, their mental health probably initially will, will suffer because the substance they were using to, to numb or treat whatever mental illness that they're faced with is now gone. So what has been some of your but what has been some of the stuff that you've seen with your patients that's really had them, you know, experience a lot of success in early recovery that have led them to be able to mitigate a lot of that in a healthy way? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this neuroscience frame and teaching my patients about the pleasure pain balance and how initially when they stop using their substance, their balance will tip hard and fast to the side of pain and it will stay there for a while is important because it gives them some window into what's happening in their brain biologically, 
but it also says, Hey, time alone will heal you. You know, you, yes, you feel bad now, but if you just wait long enough and, and give your brain time to heal and expect to feel bad. So, so much of life is sort of what we're expecting, right? But if you just kind of know and expect you're going to feel bad for a while, but it will get better and you can endure, I think that's a really helpful message. And patients have told me that that is a helpful message. Now, having said that, you know, typically at about a month of abstinence, people will endorse feeling better, but not always. And so, you know, there are going to be people um, for whom, you know, stopping substances doesn't necessarily alleviate their psychiatric symptoms and they will need treatment for a co-occurring psychiatric disorder. So this is not to say that, you know, we should just focus on the addiction and not the co-occurring psychiatric symptoms, but, but I'm quite convinced that we have to first focus on the addiction And if there's a co-occurring psychiatric disorder, really our medicines and interventions for all the reasons I've talked about, you know, really don't work when people are in their addiction loop. The other thing that, that I recommend, you know, especially in early recovery is, is highly counterintuitive, which is I tell patients, you know, instead of reaching for a substitute way to comfort yourself, do something hard. I say, do something physically or mentally hard, even physically painful for you, like exercise or, uh, you know, ice cold water baths. And the reason for that is because again, getting back to the pleasure pain balance, when we press on the pain side of the balance, the gremlins hop on the pleasure side of, of the balance, and we get an opponent process reaction that ultimately will move our needle toward a pleasure homeostasis. It will basically by, you know, through the science of hormesis, by introducing toxic or painful stimuli in small doses, what we do is we activate our body's own regulating and healing mechanisms, our own endocannabinoid, endoopioid, endoserotonergic, endodopamine systems to upregulate so that we're kind of making our own dopamine. And, and that's, I have a whole chapter on that, on pressing on the, the pain side of the balance, and especially early recovery. I say exercise is so key, you know, instead of like replacing nicotine with cannabis or with alcohol, you know, read a really dense text that, you know, that's hard for you do something creative. So something where the dopamine is not primary, but secondary through effortful endurance, or even pain. The other thing that I would add is it's really fascinating to me the way that all of us, not just people with addiction, but all of us use rewards to frame time and use rewards to kind of give our day shape. You know, even if it's something as simple as I can't wait to get home tonight to have dinner and watch Netflix. And it's the thing that we are then looking forward to. But if you do a kind of Gedanken experiment or a thought experiment where you take away those rewards as a way to frame your time, it's a very interesting experience because instead of looking forward to the thing that's going to take you out of the moment, you are just simply left with the moment. And when you're just left with the moment, you know, it could be boring or frustrating or whatever it is, but it's all you've got. 
And when it's all you've got, you really do reorient it, you know, reorient on that moment in a different way. So it's these kinds of changes in mental frame that, that I think are, are really helpful. And of course, action, action that is not necessarily congruent with feeling. And this is really key in early recovery. Patients will say, well, you know, I don't feel like exercising. I'm like, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Like if we, if we had your feelings as the guide for what you should be doing next, we're, we're going to be in trouble, right? So we can't wait for you to feel like exercising. You just have to exercise. We can't wait until you feel like going to a meeting. You just need to go to a meeting. In fact, if there's something that you feel some emotional urgency around, I would be very suspicious of that. I would probably press the pause button on that and wait 24 hours. What you said there is so important for people to hear, especially, especially if they're like in the early parts of the recovery, because traditionally what happens with a lot of people is that, again, like I said, they just take that first step and they get sober, get in a recovery. And that's an awesome first step. But I think, you know, you talk a lot about withdrawal and one of the things that was eye opening to me, and it it totally made sense once I heard you say it was this idea of like long-term withdrawal that, you know, in the, we think about withdrawal in the acute sense where it's like, you're, you know, for me, it was like vomiting, shaking, sleepless nights, massive anxiety, depression, and go on and on with all the symptoms. And then eventually it, you're right. It does subside, right. And you feel better, but then maybe a year later, two years later, for some people, they're still experiencing anxiety. They're still experiencing depression. They're still experiencing some cravings and there's, and then, and then I think people like attach a little bit of, they, they, they feel shameful about it. They're like, why am I not getting better? Or they're like, man, I'm anxious. I'm I, the drugs. It didn't really matter if I got off drugs, I might as well go back. I mean, they just start to come up with these excuses to validate why they should go back. And that's why a lot of people relapse. So that's why it's so important to, to follow that advice and that no matter what still exercise, no matter what, still try to eat well, no matter what, get around a good community of people, do hard things, take action. And I think that's important for, for anybody in life, no matter if you're somebody who's addicted to drugs or not. And, and along these same lines, you know, I touched on at the beginning how I think we've spent too much time figuring out like the root cause of addiction, where it really it's irrelevant right now because we're in such a crisis that it's clearly we haven't been able to figure it out. And, and doing that is just not really working. But I get a lot of parents that, that I've that I've trained, that I've worked with, that they, 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 they raise their kids in a, in a great home. They go to a great school. They live a great life. There is no trauma. There is no like toxic environment at home and their kids still get addicted. So yeah. if you could kind of speak on that for a minute, just to provide some insight and, and maybe provide a little bit of understanding for those or give the audience a little bit of understanding on that. I think people would really appreciate that. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result, fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, 
boosting your energy and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. Yeah, you know, it's such an important point because there, you know, are, are so many books and so many writings out there now that, you know, trying to find, you know, well, okay, why, why did I get addicted? Or why, why did this person get addicted? And if only I could, you know, deeply understand my, my childhood trauma or, or whatever the trauma was. And, you know, I think there's value in understanding how our childhood and our experience shapes us. And it definitely does. And, and trauma has a huge impact, but at some point, you know, that kind of insight can, can, as one of my patients says, insight can be the booby prize. And, and I just love that because it's really true. If it just remains at the level of sort of insight and it doesn't translate into behavior change, people don't get better. I would also say that people can really get stuck on their trauma and they can almost like get addicted to thinking about their trauma and they kind of perseverate and, and ruminate on it. And it really becomes like an obstacle, you know, to recovery because it's like everything about their identity, which I think is, is, is highly problematic, especially if it's a blaming stance, which is not conducive to recovery. So, you know, it's, it's so important that, that that's taken into account, but at some point people, people move on and they take action. And to your, you know, to your point about, you know, a young person growing up with basically ideal circumstances and getting addicted, this is essentially what Dopamine Nation is about, that we, you know, we, in some ways you could argue modern life is the perfect life. I mean, we, you know, yes, there's income disparity, but the income gap is smaller than it's ever been in human history. We have more leisure time and more disposable income than we've ever had in human history, including among the poorest of the poor. The poorest of the poor have more leisure time and more disposable income for luxury goods than ever before. So what is it? Why are we all so unhappy and why are we all so addicted? And I really think it's the addictogenic environment that we live in, the fact that everything has become drugified, that essentially the dark side of capitalism is that we would all eventually become you know, addicted. And, and so it doesn't really help to go looking for the underlying trauma because sometimes there just isn't any. And even when there is, it's not necessarily helpful. What we need to do is look at the neuroscience of how this environment is influencing our brains and really be aware of the mismatch between how our brains evolved to adapt to a world of scarcity and how unadapted we are to this world of overabundance. Mm. I love what you said there. And like the, like, you know, essentially, I guess like the, the dark side of capitalism and, you know, there's some people that might recognize you from your, your role in, in the social dilemma, which, you know, highlighted the social media component of what's going on. And we spend way too much time on our phones. People spend way too, too much time playing video games or, you know, waiting to see how many people will like their photo on social media. But because like, you know, like when you're, when you're putting a needle in your arm and you're injecting heroin or you're getting like 
hammered, drunk every night, and you're seeing it really destroy relationships more immediately, you know, it's, it's a lot more obvious that that addiction is wrecking their life versus like, sometimes we're not even aware that we're on our phones, you know, five hours a day, six hours a day, seven hours a day. So with that said, in this, this notion that essentially every human being is susceptible to becoming addicted to something, what are some of the like hidden addictions that, that a lot of people you think suffer from that might not be aware of it? Well, definitely our devices, definitely our smartphones. You know, what I hear a lot from people is that they need to have to basically have an umbilical cord to their smartphone because they need to be available for their family or they need to be available in case of an emergency or they, what I hear most often is they, they need it for work. And so it's not addictive because they're, they're on it for their work. And to some extent, you know, those things are true, but, but often not to the extent that people are attached to their devices and to their phones. And, and you know, the, the devices themselves have also become a portal to traditional drugs that now have become so exponentially more available 24-7 that people who could previously manage, let's say, a gambling addiction or a pornography addiction really have, have just tipped over with the advent of the internet first, and then most importantly, the smartphone, which allows for this kind of 24-7, you know, hidden anonymous access to these very potent stimuli. Social media is, is one that I've talked about before. Obviously, it's discussed in the social dilemma. I mean, one thing I think about is it's sort of an interesting category because I mean, what is social media, right? Any, I mean, almost everything we do online is arguably a form of social media, people exchanging ideas, uh, images, text. I mean, it's all social media. And also it's not exclusive. Like when people are playing video games, they're also engaging on discord, which is a kind of a social media that they then combine with the gaming. There are, you know, there's gambling involved in the video games. So you've got, you know, gambling combined with video games combined with social media, all of which, by the way, increases potency because when we combine drugs, that's how we increase potency and overcome tolerance. But I think the key really, and then even, let me just go back a second to say even traditional drugs, whether it's cannabis or alcohol or opioids, you know, technology has allowed all of those drugs to become more potent over time. You know, so if you think about opioids, the trajectory of opioids is fascinating. So opioids come from the poppy plant, right? Morphine is an alkaloid that was separated from opium. You know, in the early 1800s, it's 10 times more potent than opium. Eight, by the 1850s, you know, the hypodermic syringe was invented. The hypodermic syringe was supposed to be a way to deliver morphine that would be protect people from addiction. The opposite happened. And then by the late, the late 1800s, Bayer, Bayer Pharmaceuticals invented their new molecule, which was supposed to have the healing properties of morphine and opium without the addictive potential. They called that molecule heroin. And here we are today, we've got, you know, doctors can prescribe fentanyl lollipops, literally lollipops of fentanyl. So, you know, technology has just exploded these properties of quantity, potency, and novelty that contribute to the addictogenic potential of almost everything we do. There's so much to dive into there. And I think first what comes to mind before we get into the opioid crisis, because I know that's a, it's a big problem right now, specifically I mean, people are dying left and right from, from fentanyl, Coke laced with fentanyl, heroin laced with fentanyl. And it's just, it's obviously a massive problem, but 
I've heard you talk about the effect that certain things have on our dopamine receptors in our brain and how like, I think it's sex raises our dopamine levels by like a hundred times. And then cigarettes, like 150, I think meth's like a, a thousand. Where does, where does social media and like the likes, have you found any research that's just shown how that impacts the dopamine receptors? Well, we know that just, just screens in general are reinforcing and, and increased dopamine levels and that gaming and images, um, especially attractive images, you know, increased dopamine levels. The, the actual levels we don't have numerically, those are from rat experiments, putting mm-hmm. a, a probe into a rat's brain, exposing it to various um, substances that it ingests and literally measuring dopamine levels, finding that food increases dopamine above tonic baseline, 50 units, sex is hundred, nicotine, 150, cocaine, 250 and amphetamine, methamphetamine, a thousand. So, you know, I don't know of any ex- experiments, you know, showing social media to a rat and, and probably it wouldn't be particularly useful unless maybe it was pictures of rats. Maybe somebody's going to do that out there, but certainly we do know that these various forms of online engagement do activate the brain's reward pathway and the behaviors around them, I think, leave no doubt that they're inherently addictive. Just the simple fact that we're all struggling with limiting consumption speaks to the inherently reinforcing nature of these online activities. Yeah. Cause you hear about people who get like anxiety or depressed, or they experience like some sense of like mental discomfort when they're without their cell phone or oh, yeah. they're not able to get on social media. And I guess as I, where I was going with this was like, I was almost wondering, you know, if if in fact looking at a screen and getting on social media and posting photos and relying on likes and stuff impacts your dopamine receptors, that it creates that tolerance and it starts to tip that pleasure pain scale and mess around with that, that because of that, people are more susceptible to turn to drugs because they've built this dopamine, you know, tolerance in their brain that they have to get that dopamine rush from something else because they're just looking at their phone so much that they can't, you can't look at your phone more than sometimes 15 hours a day because you have to like sleep. You got kids, you got things and you can only do so much. And I guess going back to the opioid epidemic, you know, and while I, I don't think that again, like spending too much time talking about the causes is really gonna, gonna help matters as far as like, you know, saving people's lives. What I, what I am interested in, like, why do you think we're here right now? Like, why do you think it's, it's so bad right now that nearly, you know, almost a hundred thousand people last year lost their lives to drug overdoses. And a lot of that caused by opioid deaths and specifically fentanyl. It's very clear that the current U S opioid epidemic started with the increase in opioid prescribing for minor and chronic pain conditions in the late 1990s. And that paradigm shift in medicine occurred in large part as a result of marketing by Purdue Pharma and others that essentially duped doctors into believing that opioids are more effective for pain than they really are and less addictive than they really are as long as you're prescribing them to a patient in pain. And let me just say that opioids are very effective for pain short-term, but when you take them every day over long periods of time, those gremlins hop on the pain side of the balance and they can actually make pain worse. But starting in the late 1990s, opioid 
prescribing quadrupled between 1999 and 2012 in the United States. And as a result, not only did we have more patients getting addicted to opioids, but we had more diversion of opioids to non-patients. So we essentially had a flooding of the market of opioids. And that meant more kids getting them from their parents or grandparents' medicine cabinets, trading them at school. It just became commonplace for people to use prescription opioids to either relieve pain or to get high. Obviously now we're in the second and even third or fourth waves of this epidemic where people who have become addicted have turned to illicit sources of opioids like heroin. Fentanyl has infiltrated the heroin market and also infiltrated counterfeit pills of Xanax and other drugs infiltrated the cocaine market, as you, as you point out, people dying essentially because they don't know they're taking fentanyl and, and fentanyl is 50 to hundred times more potent than morphine, highly lethal, a very small dose can kill, especially in opioid non-tolerant individuals. And frankly, we have people who are so addicted to opioids that they're seeking out fentanyl. I have patients who are, seek out fentanyl. They smoke fentanyl. They smoke fentanyl every day. They're that addicted to it and they're not dying from it because they're so incredibly opioid tolerant. And of course, now we have, you know, mixed in all that, we're, slow, we're seeing a rise in, in amphetamine, methamphetamine and cocaine deaths. So, I mean, that that is one sort of ideologic trajectory or causative narrative, but but obviously it's not the whole story. There's also the story of deaths of despair. And this is the work of Princeton economist, Anne Case and Angus Deaton, basically just talking about how people um, who don't have a high school degree and who are unemployed and who are um, young and also middle-aged are dying younger for the first time in generations. And the top three causes of death in that cohort are drug overdoses, alcohol-related liver disease, and suicide. So what we essentially have is really we've reached a kind of tipping point globally, but especially in the United States and especially in other rich nations where all of this wealth has led to, I mean, I think, you know, is the cause essentially of the despair and the kind of turning to drugs and the boredom and the ennui and the lack of meaning and purpose which is, you know, leading to this kind of, you know, situation where we're sort of titillating ourselves to death. It's, I think it comes down to, to like accessibility. And before I, I go into that more, you know, what you brought up with the the pharmaceutical companies and the overprescription of them. Like if you think of like back when I was doing, I was, I was an oxy addict. I was snorting like three, 400 milligrams of just straight oxy OC eighties a day. And when I was buying them back in the, you know, mid two thousands, I guess, or so it was like 2005, 2005, six, seven, like back in that era, 2008, they were like maybe 50 cents a milligram, you know, 50 cents a milligram, 75 cents a milligram. So an 80 milligram pill might've cost me anywhere between 40 and 60 bucks. But what I found in recent years from what I've heard from other people is that that's gone up to like a dollar a milligram, even $2 a milligram. So you think about, I mean, while there's obviously a lot of people that do very well that are addicted to drugs, there's a big part of the population that doesn't do very well. And they're just broke, just trying to do whatever they can to get their next fix. And they're like, Mm -hmm. well, I can get 
the same, if not a bigger fix for 10 bucks, 20 bucks, right, right. why would I go and spend 150 bucks on a pill? And I think that's a big cause of it, right? Is just the, yes. and it's more accessible because, right. you know, they've put a squeeze on the doctors. I think if you will, with not being able to prescribe some of these pills, pharmacies aren't able to carry certain amounts of them. And I think that's obviously, and rightfully so, I guess, played a role because of the dangers that that presented itself. And it's just this massive, like like snowball that kind of just came together all at once. You combine that with the accessibility of things like social media, which we know can lead to, you know, decreased mental health, increased rates of anxiety and depression. You look at, like you said, like the, just the, how much the, the wealth has grown in our, in our country. And then you get people who don't have a diploma and they don't have a job and they lack purpose. They lack connection, that community. And that's just a recipe for disaster, Right. When it comes to addiction, and it's something that really touches my heart and and, and the, the hearts of many, and and so with that said, I think like the next place I want to kind of go with this is like we've talked about like early recovery and and even like preventing addiction. Like I've heard you say, like the biggest things are just knowing you're going to experience pain in life and just making sure you're doing these hard things consistently, exercise, cold showers, cold bath, whatever works for you, and just being consistent with that. But like, what else is there? So just say that there's somebody who's listening to this that's that's struggling with addiction right now and wants to get help, but just feels hopeless. They just feel like they don't know where to to look. They're they're afraid to to, to reach their hand out. Like, like what kind of plan, if you will, is a good start for them? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean, I, I think that in these communities of healing with other people in recovery are very very powerful. And it's interesting because my some of the criticisms on, online of my book, Dopamine Nation, are that I'm pro-AA, which I really find fascinating. I mean, it's true. I am. I am a pro-AA, but it's just interesting to me that, you know, that that's that people that's upsetting for people because obviously it's not for everyone, but for those who actively participate, that the data are strong, that the recovery rates are good and on par with the kinds of recovery you might experience getting individual psychotherapy from a professional, which is by the way, a lot more expensive and harder to access. So I, I regularly recommend mutual help groups and peer recovery for people who are struggling with addiction. And again, there's more evidence for AA and NA, but if that's not, you know, if that doesn't work for you, there are lots of other types of mutual help groups. And there are, I'm seeing more and more people creating their own communities, new communities online, communities in person, these recovery communities. And I think that's really exciting. So it's not that I'm only about AA, but I am about people in recovery coming together and helping each other. And I think in many ways, these mutual help groups have supplanted religious organizations. As I talk about in my book, you know, the church and the synagogue and the temple used to be the place that people went for help, you know, a century ago, but they're not really functioning to serve that role as effectively in most instances uh, for a variety of different reasons. The other types of, you know, sort of metacognitive strategies I talk about are self-binding strategies, recognizing that willpower is a finite resource. And if you wait until you're in the throes of desire, there's essentially no deciding. Instead, really create an environment 
that puts a barrier between you and your drug of choice. You know, change your physical environment. You know, think about the people that you surround yourself with. You know, create structure in your day. Structure is so important for all of us. The other thing I that I recommend, and I have a whole chapter on this in my book. And again, this is something a bit of wisdom I learned from my patients in recovery is I actually prescribe truth telling. So I tell people in early recovery, um, in addition to abstaining this month from your drug of choice, I want you to not lie about anything. And I just preface that by saying, and by the way, that's really hard because we're all liars. We're all natural liars. Uh, we're just inclined to say, you know, gee whiz, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm late. The traffic was bad. When the, the truth is, I'm sorry, I'm late because I wanted to have five extra minutes to read the paper and drink my coffee. But it's really important for early recovery. And I, I actually think for a life well lived to tell the truth as much as you can, whenever you can. And I talk about all the different reasons why that is. And there's some neuroscience behind it too. I think that a lot of the neuroscience probably comes from like the role that identity probably plays, because I think we lose ourselves when we get in the depths of addiction and we're so far removed from the person that we know we truly are at, at the core, because nobody likes being an addict, like inside everyone is suffering and struggling and just clinging on to any kind of hope they possibly can. And sometimes there, there is no hope. And, and with that said, I think when you begin to just lie to yourself about, oh, you're a piece of shit or you're hopeless, you're an addict, you're going to be this way the rest of your life, you start to believe that. Mm -hmm. And that becomes your new identity. So I think you're mm -hmm. so right that when you get into recovery, you really start to to learn to love yourself again and learn about yourself and learn what you like and the kind of things that you like to do. And then when you, I think when you're honest with yourself and then others, you start to get back to your true identity because you start to tell the truth in a way that, you know, aligns with who you really are at your core. And I'm really glad you brought that up. And then when it comes to AA, I mean, I didn't get into recovery through AA, but I know plenty of people that did and, I, and it works for them. And that's awesome. Like I strongly support that. I think people, from what I understand, who don't like AA, it, it's it comes back to when people who are in AA like jam it down people's throats mm. as the only way, and but that doesn't take away from the fact that I think AA is a great program. I think any it doesn't matter what recovery program you work. I think no matter what, it has to have a spirituality principle to it. Doesn't matter what it is, you know, as long as it works for you, there has to be structure, has to be structure and discipline because when you're an addict, you lose any sense of structure, your mind's all over the place and regaining that is so helpful. Fitness, I think has to be a core component, you know, and, and personal accountability and, and being of service. And I think if you can do all those things, it doesn't matter what you do. And as long as your life's getting better and you're feeling better about yourself and everything else around you is improving, then just do what works for you. And, and so that pretty much, I think, covers like what to do if somebody who's listening to this, if there's an individual who's struggling with addiction or somebody who wants to you know, really thrive in recovery. But clearly, you know this more than me. I get a lot of people, parents, husbands, wives, loved ones that are reaching out saying, hey, I have a kid who's not behaving well. I have a kid. He just won't stop smoking pot. He won't stop doing this or my husband this or that. Like, what do I do? And I never have the, I can only speak from my own experience and I, I feel bad because I'm like, I wish there was a magic pill I could give you, but unfortunately mm -hmm. there's not. So just from a clinical and neuroscience perspective, like what kinds of things do you tell people when they come to you and they have a child or a loved one who's you know showing signs of addictive behavior? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, every situation is unique. You know, there's not, not a one size fits all. When, when I when I'm dealing with a family member who has a young person in the home, a child, a teenager struggling with this problem, you know, I, I mean, I just acknowledge first, it's super challenging because the, their youth can protect them initially from so many of the consequences of drug use that people later on, you know, they get sick and tired of being sick and tired and then they go for help. But that's not necessarily true for young people, many of whom can continue to function at quite a high level, including getting good grades and getting into good colleges and all of that. So it can be really challenging to puncture, you know, the denial of that problem. But, you know, if the, if the kid is willing, I mean, it's always a kind of matter of talking directly to the source. And I think it's great that you relate your own experience. That gives you a lot of credibility and you can really speak to like the pros and cons of using and the pros and cons of being in recovery. And it really rings true for people. What I try to do again is just keep going back to the neuroscience because a lot of times these kids will endorse that they're unhappy or they're bored or they're anxious or they're depressed or they can't concentrate or they can't sleep. And that's why they use And I'll say to them, you know what, I hear you that, you know, your drug seems to manage that problem, but I'm going to hypothesize that your drug is actually creating that problem. Mm. And then I explain the neuroscience and they, you know, people, young people in particular, I think really resonate with the neuroscience frame and that makes sense to them. And then I invite them to do an experiment, which is essentially to abstain from their drug of choice for 30 days. And 30 days is a good amount of time because first of all, it's not a lifetime. So I'm not saying you can never drink again, or you can never use, you know, use marijuana or cannabis again. I'm just saying, Hey, can you not use for 30 days? Why 30 days? Because 30 days is sort of the minimum amount of time that the brain needs to reset reward pathways or restore homeostasis. And then I warn them and I say, you know, you're going to feel worse before you feel better. The first two weeks will be the pain, pleasure, pain, balance tip to the side of pain. But if you can just hang in there, I'd love you to come back in a month and tell me how it was. And, you know, when they're willing to do that, it's awesome because it's basically, I'm just saying, I don't know. Here's an experiment. Let's try this. I hypothesize the drugs are actually making things worse for you. You don't think so. Let's do the experiment and let's see what happens. And then they come back and I say, hey, what was good about that? You know, what was bad about that? And and most of the time, Doug, 80% of the time, they come back feeling better. And they're very surprised. They're like, I'm shocked. Like they will say something like, when I stopped cannabis, I started violently vomiting. And that's when I realized that I'd become addicted. It's a realization. And then they say, and here I am a month of not using, and I feel so much less anxious and depressed. I never imagined that the cannabis was actually making it worse. And then I don't have to convince them because they gathered their own data, right? We did the experiment. They were little scientists in their lives. They got the data. And I say, this is awesome. You're feeling so much better. What do you want to do next month? So you break time into these little chunks. I said, what do you want to do the next month? You want to continue absence because you feel so great. Or do you want to go back to using? And I would say 99% of the time, they want to go back to using. That's okay. I say, okay, 
but they say, I want to go to using, but I want to use less and I want to use differently. So I said, then I say, okay, what barriers can we put in place so that you can use less and so that you can use in a way that's more consistent with your goals and values? And we talk about that, you know, writing exactly how much you're going to use, when are you going to use, who are you going to use with, writing it down, what are you going to use, do when you're not using, what are some of your, you know, replacement behaviors like exercising or being in nature or doing your homework or whatever it is. And then they come back a month later and, you know, we talk about how that went. Sometimes it's a total disaster. They went right back to binge eating, but sometimes they're able to kind of manage it for a while, or in some cases for a long while. I love how you ask them like open-ended questions because it makes people feel empowered because they already know inside of them what they should do. I think we all have that intuitive, whatever you want to call it, notion and feeling of, I probably should give this up. My life's kind of falling (laughs) apart. I just got to figure out like how to do it. And I think it helps having somebody like yourself to kind of create that safe space for them to be able to open up and not feel stupid. Because I think that's one of the things as addicts, what happens is people feel like they're dumb or they don't know anything because their life's starting to fall apart. And then on top of that, they're having the people around them just completely shame them and tell them this Mm -hmm. and that. And they're reading stuff about, you know, addiction that, you know, talks about it in a negative way and they feel pretty small. And I think when you can create that safe, that safe haven, like you, like you were saying that you do for them to open up and actually share what they think they want for their life and making sure it's aligned with how they want to feel about themselves and their life. It's a win-win situation. And, and you talked about something that that's very popular right now, and that's pot. And a lot of people don't know that pot can cause paranoia Oh, yeah. And a certain percentage of people it did with me. Like I had to stop the re- the reason that I started doing opiates was because I got panic attacks from smoking pot mm-hmm. and I couldn't give up that lifestyle right. to, to save my life. Like I just needed to stay around the same people and make the choices I was making. So what are your, what are your thoughts on pot? Cause now it's being used as a massive form of harm reduction. And you're hearing people say things like, well, at least people aren't dying. It's better than that. But is it really, in fact, like helping people get better, like long term? Like, what are your thoughts on using pot as a, as a way to treat addiction? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, pot cannabis has become a hard drug. I mean, the potency has increased in almost linear fashion since the 1970s. So this is, you know, this isn't your grandma's pot anymore. Also, trends of use have changed, whereas people used to use recreationally on the weekends with friends. We're seeing more and more people who are daily heavy users and who use cannabis and smoke, primarily smoke cannabis, similar to the way that people smoke cigarettes. They wake up, they start smoking, they smoke all the way through the day until they go to bed again. So we're using it in a different way than we did before. It's a different drug than it was before. And it absolutely is addictive and even separate from that can cause significant harms, paranoia and psychosis being one of them. And most of the time with, with cessation of use that gets better, but certainly I have seen people who have developed outright schizophrenia or psychotic disorders, which may very well be linked to their heavy cannabis use. And there are data just to support that data out of um, Israel showing that The more pot you smoke in early adolescence, first of all, if you smoke cannabis in early adolescence, you're more likely to develop a psychotic disorder uh, in young adulthood and it's dose dependent. So the more cannabis you smoke, the more likely you're to develop a psychotic disorder, you know, which is, is, you know, obviously for obvious reasons, highly concerning. And then to speak to your, you know, situation, 
The thing about addictive drugs always comes back to the pleasure pain balance and anything that works initially will eventually turn on us and may even end up causing the very symptom that we sought to relieve in the first place. I cannot tell you how many patients I have seen who smoked cannabis sometimes for years to alleviate anxiety until they got to a point where it actually caused anxiety. And this is, again, those gremlins on the pain side of the balance where it essentially stops working. And now you've, you've essentially created an anxiety disorder or contributed to your anxiety disorder because of the pot use. The hard thing is that when you stop it, when we stop it, initially the anxiety gets much, much worse before homeostasis is restored and gets better. So this is what's so paradoxical. It feels to people like they're medicating their underlying anxiety disorder when in fact they're really medicating withdrawal from the last dose. Wow. Yeah. There's, there's so much that's that you said that's so true, especially with the pot. And I think people have this idea that because it's legal, that it makes it okay. And if you think about like alcohol is legal and that kills tons of people every single year and cigarettes are legal. Yeah. I mean, it's worse than it's almost worse than, than being legal. It's, it's medical. I mean, it's medicine. So people have really rationalized that they're taking it for, you know, medicinal reasons. And although cannabis has been shown in, in, in reliable studies to relieve pain short-term, just like opioids, if you do it every day, long-term, it stops working and it doesn't, you know, decrease the use of prescription opioids in the treatment of pain. People who are on opioids and use cannabis to relieve their pain end up on opioids and cannabis. They don't, they don't move from opioids to cannabis. Mm. Yeah. Gosh, it's, it's so true that what you just said about the short-term versus long-term, like short-term. Yeah. It's great to get you off of maybe like a super hard substance like heroin or Oxycontin or meth or whatever. But then after that, it's like, okay, like you got to come up with plan B and you got to be prepared that once you come off that cannabis, like your life's going to still get worse. Like you're going to experience symptoms of anxiety, depression, that, that pain scale is going to go down a bit. Like, is there, is there a way though, to experience any kind of pleasure though, in a, in a healthy way? Like I know exercise, for instance, gives us pleasure. I know community gives us pleasure, but will will even things that are like considered to be healthy, will they end up causing us pain based on what it does to the brain or does that work differently? I think, you know, engaging in activities that don't immediately release dopamine, but, but lead our bodies to make dose dopamine as a, as a, an opponent process uh, effect are the best sources of dopamine. So this means activities that through effortful engagement over long periods of time lead to delayed rewards. Again, exercise, creative endeavors, learning, effortful work, building meaningful relationships slowly over time. So basically these are the types of effortful things that in the moment do not feel good, but after we've done them, there's actually a release of dopamine and the cumulative effect over long periods of time is to reset our reward thresholds to the side of pleasure. Meanwhile, avoiding highly potent pleasurable stimuli is important for all the reasons that we've been talking about. So, and then, and then I guess I would just add one thing too. I think really our deepest moments of pleasure are those that come unbidden. They're the unexpected moments that we can't control or predict and that we just simply have to wait for and recognize that we have to wait for them. 
And th- that's really, I think, where we will experience, you know, a kind of a, a deep, a deep happiness that unfortunately we can't control or necessarily invite. But if we lay the foundation of our lives to optimize those com- those moments coming unexpectedly, I think we can do that. I love that. And and I guess from what I'm understanding, what you're saying is like drugs and social media and these fast relationships, these intense, passionate relationships where you see people jump from relationship to relationship because it feels good in the beginning. And then they want to get more of that or gambling and all these other things that are highly addictive. They give you pleasure in the short term and then give you massive amounts of pain long-term. That's But the things like exercise, the things like building like an organic relationship, or doing something challenging, like getting in the sauna or taking a cold plunge or whatever, they give you pain in the, the near term. Like it's hard to sweat it out sometimes working out. It's hard to build that relationship when you want that like deep, meaningful connection right away. But the pleasure comes like more long-term because That's you've right. endured that pain and taught yourself like, oh, like I can embrace this discomfort and put the work in and be patient and, you know, good things they say come to those who wait. So I totally believe that. So my last question, I guess, is this is, you know, I know that right now we are in like some really tough times and I know you don't have all the answers, but you're certainly somebody that has a lot of expertise and knowledge around it. So let's just say that you were in charge of everything. Like somebody gave you the key to the opioid, the drug epidemic car, and you were in charge of driving it. Like, what are some things that that you would do that you think could, could alleviate some of the pain that addiction is causing our country right now? Wow. That's really a, a big, big question, probably bigger than I can do justice to, but I, I think that we have to start small. And by that, I mean, I think that these, these problems are best targeted in small human groups. I don't know that that these can be that the real solution can be a top-down scaled solution. I think it has to come from families, however we define families, and there are so many wonderful kinds of families now, which is great. But from within our families, what I would recommend and promote is really a new kind of asceticism. That is to say, an eschewing of or a rejection of easy pleasures in favor of a life that is more difficult, more harder earned, requires steady infusion of our of work without the expectation of reward, but with the expectation that through this patient investment, we will build better families. We will build better communities. We will save our planet. So, you know, our compulsive overconsumption is not just harming us, but it's also harming the planet that we live on. So a a kind of moving away from this compulsive pleasure-seeking consumption from very, very early and learning to, you know, learning to reject really the convenience and the easy pleasures of our lives in favor of, you know, a, a, a commitment to things that are hard. Mm. That was, that was incredible. And I think you're, you're so right. I think just really starting from the foundation and, and letting people experience 
like hardship and just having these little wins of pleasure, these little wins of experiencing pain to get the pleasure and just doing the hard things consistently, you know, over time, instead of, you know, dipping for the instant gratification and in the stakes and how excessive everything is around us, cell phones, gambling, porn, drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, and like really pushing that to the side and really like focusing on family dynamics, connection, what you eat, exercise, and just challenging, challenging yourself to be a better person each and every day. So Anna, this has been awesome. I think people are going to get a lot out of this episode and I highly encourage everyone to check out Anna and get a copy of her book called Dopamine Nation, which is changing the nation. It's already become a New York Times bestselling book. And, and I really enjoyed our conversation. So thanks for coming on. Me too. And thank you for your great questions and your openness and your authenticity and your amazing recovery journey. Thank you. Thank you so much. And for those listening, what I encourage you to do, just like I do with almost every episode, is to take a screenshot and share a takeaway. I know Anna is not as active on social media, but definitely share a takeaway from what she said in this episode, whether it was something that she said about the pleasure pain trap, whether it was something she said about addiction, neuroscience, recovery, whatever it was, you know, tag myself, mention Anna, mention one takeaway that you learned. We'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and we'll see you next time.